0: Um, So hello,
1: everybody. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. We're very excited for the continuation of our series called Sourcing Food, Animals, Plants, and the Jews who Tend Them. Um, And tonight we have a very exciting guest, um, Rava Malia Haas. And um, this is one of of, uh, many lectures and classes going on as part of Grisha's Wintersman, where we are exploring all things relating to food. So in our mornings, we have halmud classes um, about making lessons over food. In the afternoons, we have halachan and Jewish thought classes. And in the evenings this week we're, we're um, having Jews who are involved in, in food from the source, um, who are also Torah scholars and normal rights teaching about food production. And then next week we're gonna be talking about food scarcity and food distribution. Um, so we'll have two classes that are like Jewish sources with me, we'll have a panel of different Jewish organizations that are all involved in food distribution. Um, And we're also gonna have an evening with Mazon who are uh, the Jewish voice for hunger and they um, they, um, kind of lobby in DC and and across the nation um, about issues relating to hunger. So they're really the experts in hunger um, and food policy in the United States. We're very excited for that series coming up next week but let me um, introduce our speaker for tonight. So Rabbi Amalia Haas teaches at the intersection of Judaism, food justice, and mindfulness. An experiential educator, writer, and beekeeper, she specializes in Jewish honeybee education, which is what she'll be doing tonight. Through her company, B with two Es, awesome, she facilitates professional development programs and retreats grounded in Judaism, creativity, and nature, and works to avert climate crisis. She sells raw honey for Hashanah and year-round. You can find that on the internet, look up Honey Bee Jewish. She is the Rabah of the Bees at Shalom Institute in Malibu, California. She's an activist with Chazon, Green Faith, and the Jewish Farmer Network. Rabah Malia was ordained in 2020 by Yeshivat Maharath's advanced executive ordination track, and her previous education includes Mahon Mardes, Matan, Shari, Yeshiv University, and Oberlin College. She lives in Beechwood, Ohio, with her husband, six children, and many bees. Ramal Malia,
0: please take it away. Thank you for that lovely introduction and thanks so much for inviting me to be part of this Ravineet Sarna. I'm so honored. I've been a huge admirer of Drisha and sometimes partaker of of learning and I'm I'm just incredibly honored to be here. Um, And uh, I wanna say a special hello and welcome to my mom who um, is joining us and that's very, special for me. So welcome, everyone. Um, Thank you for coming to learn about the bees and honey through a Jewish lens. Um, Ravanit Leah asked me to speak a little bit about how I got into this. Um, It's been a a long and winding path. Um, uh, My my parents, uh, one is a, a professional educator and the other Um, a biochemist naturalist. And um, I think that they sort of came together in my passion for uh, the planet and the environment. And I I moved through first um, vegetable gardening and then creating a Jewish um, gardening program um, in Northeast Ohio, taking that on the road to day schools and conferences. And then that segued into a kosher pastured poultry business, and then um, and then that's segued into um, into beekeeping, which initially I was really only taking on as a side hobby while I was um, going to be nursing twin babies for a while. Um, but then I got really fascinated by it unexpectedly, and it sort of brought me full circle back to my gardening camp and the fruit and vegetable farming. And I was like, oh yeah, I had always noticed there were all these bees and pollinators around. And like, they were interesting. Let's see what the story is with them. So I, I really had no intention of sort of falling in love, um, but I got swept away by the, the fascination um, of these creatures and, and their sort of interconnectedness with the whole food web and um, with so many other things um, in the sort of pulse of of the earth, so here I am. <laughs> um, and uh, I guess just to give you a sense, my my primary passion by far is the is the teaching, um, but I do um, have of a couple of different apiaries, one right here at my house, another what's called an outa apiary farther away um, in a different county, Um, and um, I've mentored the um, beekeeper students at Oberlin College, my alma mater, as well as having um, uh, students come through the Jewish Farmers Network who want to learn beekeeping and come and get mentored by me for a while. I've done some work with Case Western around beekeeping, so that's that sort of being a Jewish beekeeper in Northeast Ohio. Um, and then uh, I wanted to share with you some of the really amazing, just inspiring things for me in in our Mikol Road, in our sources, because um, you might not think that that the Chachamim, that the rabbis, knew much about. Um, bees, but you would be, I think, pleasantly surprised um, that they actually didn't know everything, but they knew an awful lot. (laughs) And there's some really interesting um, sources in the Torah, and there's also some interesting legislation. So um, although when um, Rabbanit Leah and I discussed this, we were sort of talking about first do sources and then dive into food production, I'm actually going to kind of be in love here because the rabbis actually are talking about the beekeeping. So I thought it would be cool to be like, hey, look at this source and then look at this. This is how it's actually done. So I'm going to mix it up like that with everybody's permission. Um, okay, so how about if we go to um, our first source. So just starting at the top here. Um, the nature of honey. So Honey is a, a, um, it's an unusual substance. It's liminal, meaning it can be either a solid or a liquid. And also, even when it is in its relatively liquid form, what really makes it liminal is that it's only 17 to 18% um, water. So for example, if you take a jar of honey and you turn it upside down, um, if it's really truly raw honey and it hasn't been Um, highly filtered, it'll sort of hang there before it starts to pour. Okay, so here we have this source in Baba Batra that says, Abaye said, this halacha that honey is considered neither food, i.e. solid, nor a liquid, is necessarily, necessarily only with regard to those two combs mentioned in the Mishnah, which are designated for the sustenance of the bees. Okay. and. He's referring to, um, to a different source um, uh, and, and it, it's a source I didn't put on this sheet, but basically says that when, um, when you open up a hive, you could have you know, as many as 10, 20, 30 honeycombs. And, um, and those honeycombs, you can harvest a lot of them, but you have to leave two of them Um, at a minimum over the rainy season, which is the winter in the land of Israel, so that the bees will not starve. Um, Because a hive is actually, um, the hive is obviously built by the bees, but also the honey in the hive is a dual purpose um, substance. It's both utilized for insulation, for warmth, and it's also food. Okay, so um, can, we, can we take down the source sheet for a minute? Yeah, we can see you. You can see me, okay, great. Okay, so what I wanted to show you is, um, so here you have a honey that is um, a spring honey. And so this honey has crystallized, okay? so. Even if I leave this upside down for five minutes, it's really not gonna move. Like this is, it's turned into a solid, which is one of the things that honey sometimes does. Okay, now here is a honey that's still liquid and this will move, it's moving slowly. Okay, and I also just wanted you to have a chance to notice um, the difference in color here Does anybody have a guess what that comes from? It's pretty striking, isn't it? The flower species. Yeah, exactly. So um, this honey is actually um, from uh, a monofloral source, meaning it's it's all from one flower. And the flower is buckwheat, which it's a very pretty pink flower, but it creates a super dark honey. Um, Some people love buckwheat honey, some people really dislike buckwheat honey, but almost everybody loves buckwheat honey when it's paired with dark chocolate. So if for Rosh Hashanah, somebody one year gives you buckwheat honey and you taste it and you're like, Ugh, right? Just grab some dark chocolate out of your pantry, put them together and I can almost guarantee you, you will love it. It's one of the really interesting things about honey is that just like wine, or cheese, there's like a whole art and science to tasting honey and pairing honey with different foods. Really, really interesting. Another really cool thing about buckwheat honey that I'll just mention is that this is the honey that was harvested off the fields in, um, in Ashkenaz. So at Rosh Hashanah time, buckwheat is what our ancestors, if we're Ashkenazi, were eating almost as a guarantee. And it also makes an amazing honey cake. Really, really wonderful honey cake. So I think there's a reason also why that became a thing because buckwheat honey was a great thing to make honey cake out of. Um, Okay, and then I wanted you to just see one more while we're here in the world of looking at honey. So you can see how much lighter and yellower this is. Okay, this this one here is a, a fall honey from Northeast Ohio. And you can see that one's much, much more liquidy, okay. It also just, it just happens to have like a slightly higher water content. Um, Okay. And when we're talking about in that source, when they're talking about the combs in the hive, so this is what they're talking about. This one isn't whole, as you can see, and this is part of, this is part of what's called a Langstroth hive which is a man-made hive, but basically inside a natural beehive, the bees will make a comb like this and they'll make layer after layer. So I'm, I'm putting it to you on end, but there would be like, this is one comb, there'd be another one, another one, another one, another one, and so forth, right? And that would make the entire hive um, and it's just based on the amount of space they can, they, they have available to them. And then here, for you to just look at this this is honeycomb that I harvested that's actually um full of honey and um has anybody here ever eaten honeycomb yeah yeah
1: okay. yeah
0: yeah what'd you think it's great <laughs> So a lot of people ask me, can you eat that? You know, is it okay to eat it? Is it okay to swallow it? So the, the comb itself is made of beeswax and beeswax is a natural wax. So it will not harm you. You can definitely eat it. And I wanted to have a chance to see actually that when we call it beeswax, I literally mean beeswax. So this here is... Um, what you're looking at is is a photo of a person wearing a purple glove, okay? And they're holding a bee by its back and you're looking at the bee's bee's abdomen. So over here, what you see are, well, this one is most visible, but there are right here, three pairs of glands. So six wax producing glands that make these tiny, tiny little flakes of beeswax. And what the bees do when they reproduce in the spring and they're gonna build a new hive is they have to actually build it out of those tiny flakes. Um, and, they, and they form them together. Um, so let's go back to the source sheet from that. So over here under swarming, it says in, from Bhavakamath, Gemara explains, <clears throat> this is what it's saying, the halacha stated by the Mishnah applies even to a swarm of bees, which the swarm of bees is the property of the owners via a rabbinic form of acquisition of kinyan due to the fact that you can't affect kinyan of bees by Torah law. You might think it might enter your mind to say that since one acquires the swarm of bees only to Rabanan, by rabbinic law, even where the owner's response is unspecified, it can be assumed that they despair of recovering the bees. They're thinking we'll never get that swarm of bees back. And therefore that the finder of the swarm can keep them. To counter this, the Mishnah teaches us that if it's known that the owners of the bees despaired of recovering them, then yes, the finder can keep, them, keep the bees, but if not, he can't keep them. Okay, what are they talking about? Okay, let's remove the source again. So this whole discussion about swarming, like what is this? So basically um, for those of you who have been involved in farming, right? In the springtime, the goats are calving the cows are calving. The plants in our western, in our northern hemisphere, are are sprouting up in the springtime. Okay, and the bees are also calving. But when bees calve, it's called swarming, and um, it's a fascinating phenomenon. It doesn't happen every year, but basically, if you have, if you're lucky enough to have a swarm, a hive that that went into the winter season after Rosh Hashanah and after Shemini Yetzirah, went into the winter season very strong and comes through the winter surviving and healthy, then the hive will say, okay, you know what? We're good, we're gonna have a baby. Or they might say, we're gonna have five babies. And what they do is they start to raise queens. Um, Every hive typically has one queen And so in order for a beehive to give birth to um, calve or produce swarms, to cast out swarms is what beekeepers usually say, in order for that to happen, they have to first raise queens because the first swarm that will leave is called a primary swarm. And that's gonna be the biggest swarm. Essentially for that to happen, the hive is gonna split itself in half, okay? This is how women feel the first time they give birth. It's like, <laughs> you feel like it's, how is this possible, right? So half the, po- <laughs> Ramanit Leia is nodding, yeah. So half the population of the hive is gonna leave. And actually what's interesting is the way the bees do it is the queen mother of the hive leaves and she leaves her hive to a young queen who will take over. Okay, so she leaves, she takes the risk She leaves with half the bees and she goes off to an unknown fate. Okay. Now this phenomenon of swarming that is being talked about by our sages is the kind of thing that stops traffic in Manhattan. Okay. So this is what it looks like. Right. Um, So it's like, 3,000 to 10,000 bees that are landing on one branch or sometimes they're landing on a light post or sometimes they're landing on the bumper of a car or the underside of a bench or whatever they land on. Here's another image, okay and It's a lot of bees. And inside the center of this swarm is one queen, normally. Okay, now, people think that beekeepers are super brave when they go to collect these swarms because the swarms look so intimidating. Um, But what's really interesting is when bees are in this swarming state, it is just about the only time that they are actually, they have like nothing to defend whatsoever. They don't have a home to defend because they're not in their home. They're trying to find a new home. They don't have babies to defend because they're not raising any brood at that point. It's just basically their queen and their population. So they're very, very gentle. And while I, I can't like recommend this, there are some beekeepers just for the experience that will very, very gently walk up to a swarm and just very slowly put their hand into it and just feel that warmth of what it feels like to have like hundreds and hundreds of bees like gathered around your hand, total trip, okay? Um, The reason I don't recommend it is because like if you get nervous and you do it quickly, you'll do what I call stinging myself Meaning, like I inflicted the sting on me, like the bee wasn't coming after me. I like pushed myself into the sting. <laughs> okay, so, so just going back to our source, what's really what's really interesting here, and what you have to appreciate is that, um, so, beekeepers face a special challenge that um, I know you're, you're having a. Uh, presentation by a vegetable farmer later, and you've got a dairy farmer and a shochet. So as a beekeeper, um, I have a a challenge that they don't face, which is that um, I cannot fence in my bees. Okay, so they live, say my bees here live here next to me in the suburbs, but they will fly in as much as a 10 mile radius from my house and come back. Okay, They have like three or four redundant GPS syndromes, uh, systems in, in their brains, which like put our GPS to shame. Like they can get exactly back to where they, and they, their GPS is so amazing that like, even in a magnetic storm, they say that bees can get back to their hive. Um, but basically what, what this means is that you know, if someone sprays pesticides, if people decide that they are gonna, you know, really go on a, a campaign, which many Americans in the suburbs and other places do to, to make sure that they've got a Camelon look and there's no flowers. You know, flowers are the only food for bees and pollinators. They can't live like the dairy animals can off of grass. They have to have flowers. So, um, so because I can't fence in the bees, I'm dependent on kind of communal husbandry of the land to support the bees and also to keep them safe when you think about pesticides. And and the other thing is I may have this phenomenon which actually happened to me a couple times this summer um, or this early in the spring where, um, where my healthy hives cast swarms out into the neighborhood and these bees you know a few ten thousand at a time like flew away um so you know I called the police and the fire department just because you know if 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 they fly away and they land somewhere and someone panics you know then I want them to know that I'm the beekeeper and they should let me know where the bees are and then I will go and collect them. But this is exactly the scenario that right over 2000 years ago, our source is describing, which is this swarm shows up on my land. Can I take it, right? Can I put it in my basket and let the bees build a hive there? Have the owners despaired of it? Or have they not despaired of it? Do I have to try and figure out where did these bees come from? Check back with the owner, right? Because unlike the cattle, you know, who like if they broke through the fence, that would be a pretty easy thing to track back, right? The bees are just they're they're both domesticated and they're also wild, and that's a really really interesting thing about bees. Um, Okay, let's let's hop back to our sources again. So Mishnah Oktzin, Beit Shammai says, from the moment he begins to smoke the the bees out and Beit Hillel says, once he breaks up the honeycomb. Okay, so this is in the middle of a discussion, but what they're talking about is the changing of status of honey. And there's a lot of other substances that are being discussed here. Does it? How does the honey become tame Can you use it? Can you not use it? Can you use it in an offering? Like what's the status of the honey? Okay, so what this brings up is, there's a really interesting um, question about honey, which is like, why is it kosher after all? So does anyone have a thought about why honey might not be kosher?
1: Well, it seems like it's oh. a uh, like a, an insect product. And since insects aren't kosher, or certain insects aren't kosher, therefore their honey wouldn't be kosher.
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also a reply in the chat that
1: says, doesn't the Torah say no honey and sacrifices, only salt? OK.
0: Any other thoughts about honey? And the kashrut or status of it? Well, is it it parv or what? (laughs) Is it kosher? Is it parv? Yeah. Great, okay. So, Let's take a look at it for a minute here. Um, Okay, so we looked at honey in the jar. What I want you to have a chance to look at here for a minute is honey in the comb. Okay, so this, what you're looking at here is a bee who is transferring nectar from flowers into honeycomb. Okay, so right here in in this image what you're seeing shiny stuff is actually not yet honey. So there's a whole process that goes on because flower nectar is about, depending on the flower, is about like 87 percent water. And I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I was lucky enough that um, my parents had either planted or was just growing wild in our yard, these little purple flowers that you could gently sort of pull out of their base and then take the, the narrow end of the flower, put it in your mouth and like suck the nectar from the flower. And there was just the, the, the mildest hint of sweetness, you know, like just enough to make a kid like climb around the yard and be like, oh, let me, let me do that again. You know, it's like a great way to get kids to develop, you know, fine motor skills and nature is like, cause they want to get that sweetness out of the back of the flower, right? Um, but basically, like I was acting like a bee, okay? Cause that's, that's what's really going on out there, okay? So here, I'm going to show you one of my favorite bee pictures of all times. Okay, this is one of my favorite bee pictures of all times, and I love this because um, what she's got going on here is like this is the stuff of this. This is the stuff that like makes the planet happen, basically. Okay, so if you'll notice, she's landed in a flower. <clears throat> The way the bees and the flowers have worked out their contract is that when a flower wants to be visited by a pollinator, it emits the opposite magnetic pull that um, that the bee has. So if you pretend that my hand is a flower. So if a if a flower has recently been visited by a pollinator and doesn't need a visit, you'll see a bee go Just move along. There's no pull there. On the other hand, if if the flower has nectar to connect, this is what you get. Okay, and then literally the um, the pollen that's in the flower will be magnetized onto the bee. The bee has hair all over it that will attract that pollen, including even on its eyes. Which, which you can see in this picture. Do you see the pollen on the bee's eyes? Yeah. And then what the bee does is she uses, um, she's got a special comb, like a brush on the back of these middle legs. And she uses it to brush a lot of this pollen off her body and then stuff it into this leg sack here. And then she's got it this is you're just seeing one side of her this goes on on the other side too and then she carries that back to the hive so this is an external sac but she also has an internal sac and I like to think of that the internal sac is like a honey sac it's to the side and um, and it's different from her digestive tract in other words when people talk about like honey as like bee pee or poop or vomit or whatever, they're not really getting what's going on because the bees do have a through track in and out, but the honey, the nectar is actually being carried in a designated internal sack. Um, and so she carries that, which is it's the flower nectar. She carries it back to the hive. She gives it to the other bees that are inside the hive. And then they, they put it inside the cells, and then they have to start a, a process of fanning, which if you ever have a chance to visit um, Rabineet Leia in Bella Kinwin, if you can actually go to that apiary or any of you, if you're near an apiary on a hot summer day, and you go there, what you may see is right at the entrance of the hive, a whole lot of bees lined up, like shoulder to shoulder, fanning, okay? And basically what they are doing is acting as AC professionals because they're creating a wind that goes through the hive and and wicks the moisture away from that wet nectar because they've got to take it all the way from 87% approximately water down to 17 or 18%. And once they get it down that far, Then they know that it's honey and they'll cap it. At that point, they'll put a cap over it. Here's some of the process. So here's two bees who are um, passing the nectar back and forth between each other to help cool it off. They may also be doing this as a form of communication, by the way, because um, when they find a really good nectar source, they'll give each other tastes to say, hey, this is really good, go find this. And then another thing that they'll do also um, is something called the waggle dance, which is illustrated here. Um, And a scientist actually won the Nobel prize for identifying this dance. But essentially what happens is there's a, what's called a dance floor in the hive and the bees who have found a good source of food will, will um, dance at an angle of the hive to the sun so that the bees know which way to head out. And then also, this, the number of circles and the sort of vigorousness of the dance will um, show how, how far. Um, they have to fly. And this story always cracks me up because um, I lived in Israel for three years and my, my twin brother um, came to visit me once and he, didn't, he doesn't know Hebrew. But we were asking directions of Israelis. And what he realized is that like, there's yalla, yalla, yalla. <laughs> he was like, Yala means like four blocks. Like we've got to go like like how many, and that's like basically what the bees do. It's like how many circles at what speed tells you like this dance communicates distance and direction and all of this. Um, So just getting back to our our honey production questions. So, So yeah, the reason honey might not be thought to be kosher is because it's carried by an insect that's not kosher. And we do have a general rule that tame, what comes out of an unkosher animal is not kosher, right? So in a sort of literal sense, yeah, the nectar is coming out of the bee. She's carrying it, right? So you could say not kosher, but the Chachamim clearly believed that, that bee honey is kosher. There's a discussion that I didn't share with us here, but it's, it's interesting if you'd wanna search it sometime about the honey of wasps. Um, I don't know if any of you ever have found this, but um, if, you ever, if you ever unintentionally dig up a bumblebee hive, um, they're, they're very small, like probably about this size, really small, but there's a little bit of honey in there and you can, you can see it, you know, there's just a, a little bit of honey. Um, wasps. Some of the wasps also produce a small amount of honey. Okay, um, but the the rabbis designated that that um, honeybee honey is always kosher, um, despite the fact that it's yotzei minatameh, uh, at least at one stage. Do you want to take a question now, or do you want to wait till later? I can take a question. So you showed the picture of the flower and the bee in the flower and
1: the pollen all over the hairy parts of the legs. Yes. And the sac.
0: Yes. So I'm just a little confused. They're getting the nectar out of the center part and they're carrying that somewhere and they're also carrying the pollen and taking it to other flowers. Could you clarify that thing for me? Yeah. Great question. Thank you you for asking for that clarification. So so what's happening is... um, because really what you're asking is one of the most important, about one of the most important things bees do for us, which is pollination. So what happens here is this pollen um, is gonna be brought back to the hive. It's gonna be stored in cells that are very close to where the the next generation of bees is being raised. Because in order to grow bees, what, what is used is pollen as the protein and bodybuilding source, and nectar as the sort of sugar and energy source. Okay, so in order to build the exoskeleton, protein is essential. And I'm gonna just ruin everybody's um, you know, belief system um, about Winnie, Winnie the Pooh. But you should know that Winnie the Pooh and all the other animals that are out there trying to get to the hive, Um, which include, you know, not only the bears, but also raccoons and skunks and mice and like lots and lots of different animals. They are in it for the pollen. Like the honey is an afterthought because basically pollen, as well as this is a little bit sad, but as well as the developing bees, the larva, those two things are pure protein. So for us, that's like meat or fish, you know, it's real substance. This is what that looks like, the pollen that's harvested from the hive. Um, what you saw on that bee's leg, these are, these are um, little bits of pollen that um, they, they pack together. Now, the way pollination happens though, the way that we actually get food out of these amazing insects, and this goes for all the pollinators, is that even though she cleans herself up pretty well, you can see there's still pollen on her, right? And so when she goes to the next flower, she's going to drop a few of these grains onto the next flower at the next tree, and that's what's going to allow fruits and vegetables to be to actually start to develop, because what what um, what trees don't have, and what vegetables don't have, is they don't have legs and arms, so they can't self-pollinate. There's very, very few plants that can pollinate by the wind. Almost all of them need a pollinator to come along. Um, so, Susan, does that does that answer what you were? Okay, good. Yeah, thank you. Um, So I wanted you to have a chance to see as well, um, just to have a sense of the building of a hive also. When when the source um, that we saw earlier talks about um, well, the one we discussed earlier talks about how you have to leave in the in the rainy season two of the chalot, they call them chalot debash, two of the um, combs of honey over the winter. So like here's one, here's the next one, here's another one. And this right here is one that they're just starting to build. So this will be expanded down as well. So what they're saying is that even though a beekeeper could go ahead and take these mill combs, um, before the rainy season, the outer combs have to be left so that the bees have something to sustain themselves. Um, what I also wanted for you to have a chance to see is um, just a little bit about um, the active process of beekeeping. So as a beekeeper, part of what we want obviously in the end is production of honey or pollen or, um, or bees if you're, if you're a beekeeper that actually sells starter hives. But for all of that to happen, What you have to have is you have to have healthy, a healthy process going on where the queen is laying and a lot of bees are being um, constantly raised. So this is what a honeybee egg looks like. It looks like a beautiful white grain of rice. It's actually breathtakingly beautiful in the hive. And then um, over here, you're seeing a honeybee larva bathing in a substance called royal jelly, which is, um, is a, it's, it's a magically powerful substance, uh, almost magically powerful, where um, of the, the three different casts of bees that are in the hive, there's the, the queen, the worker, and the drone, which is the males. So the queens and the workers have exactly the same genetics when they're eggs, yeah, and and all the way through. But what makes a queen become a queen is that she's fed royal jelly during her whole time before she metamorphosizes, whereas the workers only get it for a few days. So this dramatic difference between the queens and the workers just comes from royal jelly. And it's a really dramatic difference. In other words, a queen bee can live as long as seven years, whereas a worker bee will typically live only 60 days. So really, really big difference. And physically the development of her body is is quite different also. She has a much longer abdomen. Um, It's just, it's sort of astonishing when you you look at the difference um, between them. So in this picture, I know this looks like a lot of of bees kind of clustering together but this is actually not a swarm picture. What you're looking at here is these are worker bees. So these are female non-reproductive bees. And what they're doing is they are keeping the bees that are developing inside the comb at the right temperature. Because they're gonna, they metamorphosize over like, you know, about two weeks, and so they have to be kept at the right temperature. And they're just clustering on top of them to keep them warm. The comb is sealed, and and the developing bees are inside there. Um, Could you say a word about the shape, the hexagonal shape of the, uh, of the cells in the cone? Is there anything to say about that? Yeah, there's a million things to say about it. Um, I, I've, like, I've had like obsessive obsessions about hexagonal comb. So since I'm actually getting to talk to like a bunch of Jews who care about food and will put up with me saying this, I'm going to just I'm going to just share this because like I have to. So um, you notice that the middle of the Magain David is hexagonal. Right you take two, Jew, two triangles and you get the Jewish star. Yeah, of course. Center, the center is honeycomb. Right. Okay. So that's totally cool. And there's this other thing that's totally cool, which is that the Torah um, describes us as uh, a congregation, the Jewish people, right? And, and that terminology is only used about one other organism, bees. Yes. OK, so there's this like there seems to be this recognition, even on the like the biblical level of the tradition that like. That basically just like. You know, a, a congregation, a keilah is is larger, it's it's there's something there's an organismness about it that's more than just the individual parts. That, that the Torah already recognized that that's also true of the bees and and I can tell you from experience that like if you bring like five bees into your house and feed them really well they will die overnight like they have to be part of their key law they have to be part of the whole the whole organism um, there's a lot of other things there was I, I I don't know if it's still there anymore. I don't know if my mom knows if it's still there anymore, but there was a fabulous exhibit at one point at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago about um, hexagons and how there are so many different structures in nature where hexagons appear because it's the most efficient use of resources with the greatest strength. And so basically um, in the case of the honeybees, um, it takes, um, eight to ten pounds of honey to make one pound of beeswax. So, beeswax is an incredibly labor-intensive thing to produce for a hive. And um, and so, what the what the bees have figured out. I mean, you ask about the hexagon. What blows my mind is like how do they know how to make hexagons, right? Like they produce these tiny little flakes. How does the, org, how does this super organism know to do that? The way they do it, I mean, it's, it's almost like, it's one of the things that like, every time I see it, I get, I get called when there are swarms and sometimes the swarms have already like moved inside of houses and I have to cut open the side of a house, get on a ladder and like, the bees will be hanging really quietly, like in that swarm picture that I showed you. And what they're doing is they're building comb. They're like, they're 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 taking turns being at the tippy top where they've attached themselves, where they're gonna build the hive downward from. And they're like, they're passing up those little flakes. And, and it, it gets even more miraculous than that. Like it's such a Maravuma thing to experience. Like, how great are your deeds? Oh God, because like when the swarms go out from the hive, they, they select specifically the bees that go out at the, on the swarms are the ones that are just the right age so that they produce the most wax. Like that's a specific stage of development of the worker bees. I could just go on and on. Anyways, um, yeah, hexagons are incredibly cool. Um, I don't want to. I I I would be remiss if I didn't mention to you. I just I want you to just have a chance to see because I know I'm talking about honeybees because I have the the bracha of being able to keep them and everything. But I really I really want to emphasize to all of you that um, honeybees are are actually like we could do without the honeybees as cool as they are and we would miss the honey and everything, but we really can't do without pollinators. Um, pollinators are so crucial to the functioning of the planet. And so the way the way I look at the honeybees is in a sense as like, they're like the TV stars. There's the one that you like everybody hears about because we're interested in the honey or just the in pollen or whatever, but There are 20,000 species of bees in the world and many, many more species of pollinators. And what's incredible is that most of these species have an exclusive and unique relationship with one particular flower or plant. Okay. So when we talk about ecological protection, right, what you have to realize is if that plant, if that plant's Area for growing and reproducing, if its niche space in the world gets taken away, then essentially what we're doing is we are losing not only that flower, but we're losing that pollinator also because they have co evolved. Yeah, they look separate, but they're not. You should almost think about the flower and that pollinator as one organism. And that's true thousands and thousands of times over. It's true for all of these mostly very quiet native bees that we mostly ignore, but it's also true for tons and tons of butterflies, for bats that we mostly don't pay attention to. And like, this is just why, you know, it's so like, people turn to me and they're like, you know, I wanna save the bees, should I be a beekeeper? And I'm like, no, (laughs) don't, go plant flowers, like support, like invest yourself in protection of nature protect natural areas, reforest, replant, you know, and I tell people, like, if you want to keep keep bees, because it's going to be inspiring, and because it's an amazing way to develop the capacity to be um, a meditator, which it is, by the way, I have to say, Um, but that's like a whole other talk, go for it, you know. Don't plan on getting any money out of it, plan on losing money in it. Like if you want that experience, have the experience. But if you want to contribute to a more sustainable world, plant and protect. You know, plant and, and, and support other organizations that are that are protecting. Um, okay, other questions?
1: Um, I have like a, a silly question, but you know you like pulled up the jar of honey and was like, this is buckwheat. How do you know, meaning if the bees are flying 10 miles away, how do you know what, what the honey is? And like, No, is that's a like great question. Miles?
0: That's a great question. Right. So this is one of the really special things about being a beekeeper and being in one location, Ravani Sarna, is that what happens is um, if I put the, if I put my hive with empty honeycomb in it, right, the combs are empty, they've already been, they were extracted last season, and I know, what flowers when. In other words, right here in Northeast Ohio, there was a particular march of when different things flower. So on our on, in our neighborhood, the city has planted a huge number of crab apple trees, as, as what we call here, tree lawn trees. I don't know if you guys have these, but it's like that extra little lawn that's whatever. Anyways, so one of the earliest things to happen in the neighborhood is, Probably three million crabapple flowers open at the same time. Okay. And it's just, you know, one or two on each property. But as far as the bees are concerned, they chat, they have their conversation, and they go. What's what's amazing also, this, this is another cool thing about honeybees that makes them really valuable to farmers, is that once the hive like commits to a particular harvest. They will go to every single flower of that kind of plant until they're done. Okay, That also makes it really easy to get a monofloral honey or almost a monofloral honey. I can't promise they won't go to a few dandelions that are blossoming at the same time. But basically, they're on apple. That's their job. And so they're going to get that harvest. But the the thing that most of the time when we get a monofloral honey, it's actually because um, a farmer has contacted beekeepers and said, please come pollinate my crop. And so the farmer will actually pay the beekeeper a pollination fee to take their hives and put the hives in the center of a farm so that the farmer can be guaranteed that their crops will set well because, because of just how we've generally degraded nature and also because of commercial farming. Um, you know, if, there's, if, if the farmer knows, look, I've got, you know, two miles of apple trees here, or as happens in, in the almond harvest in California, it's literally millions and millions of almond trees, which are completely dependent on, poll- on bee pollination, there will be no almond crop in California. And they bring s- thousands and thousands of hives to California for the almond pollination, including some of them from abroad. Okay, um, so that's, that's just a sense, sorry, that's a sense of um, how large this business can be. But when you, when you, when you do that, you know that you basically, your bees have been inside a 10 mile radius of one plant. So that's, that's another source of monofloral, um, a way you can know that you've got monofloral honey. Uh,
1: okay, so maybe we'll just take these last like two, I'll just tell you what the questions that will come in in the chat. Two people asked about pesticides. One person asked, uh, Dr. Comstock asked, please speak about pesticides which are toxic to our bees and recommend ways to avoid their use. And Ruth Shane said, please speak about the present problem of glyphosate. Maybe you know how to pronounce that word. Yeah. And and the EPA's deregulation of it. And then someone else asked, um, if the wax is produced in the glands, is the wax also kosher or not? Two separate areas. Maybe you could address. Oh, Oh.
0: (laughs) yes. Okay. All right. Um, I'm gonna start with the last one first. Okay. So, Just for the person that asked about the wax, you could ask the same thing about royal jelly, right? It's produced by a gland in the bee's head. That would definitely seem that it's like a product of bees, right? Same thing with the wax. Um, So I was shocked and actually for my rabbinical exams, um, I studied this whole issue of royal jelly because it seemed to me that it shouldn't be kosher, Um, but the Ravan Rishit, as well as other authorities have said that it is kosher. And um, there's essentially, uh, there's there's two broad positions, but one position is that that honeybees are in this different category. Whatever a honeybee produces, you're good to go. It's kosher. That's because the rabbis have decided that. It's, it's gzayrata kutuv. The Torah tells us that what comes from honeybees is kosher. So whatever it is, no matter how it looks, it's kosher. OK, so the long and short of it is you can eat your honeycomb, you're fine. You're not you're not eating traif. Um, But the question is, is an astute one. Um, the issue of the poisoning of bees. Um, and a- again, I want to emphasize that um, the honeybees are the least of this. Right. I mean, it's we notice those but there's so many species that are dying out that we don't notice and we're not tracking because we don't value that economically and it's very, very disturbing. Um, We just take them for granted. Um, So uh, essentially we have a situation in the United States where um, broadly and generally speaking um, under both both both, Democratic and Republican administrations, our typical approach to not only pesticides, but also food for humans has been that until something is proven beyond a doubt to be harmful, it's allowed onto the market. And so in terms of how that's affected bees, it's really, really difficult um, to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt Um, and then that something's poisonous. And then even once it is proven, there are, there are basically laws that are created that can't be kept. For example, you know you can spray something but not when the bees are flying. Well, I'll tell you something as a beekeeper, the bees are always flying except at night. And at night, people aren't going out and spraying these, these um, different poisons. They're spraying them during the day. So essentially we have a situation where there's a lot of poisoning of bees going on and, um, and it's really difficult. Sometimes people will lose an entire hive um, from those poisons. And then sometimes it's not so obvious, but what you'll have is just kind of the weakening and weakening over time of, um, of a hive. And you won't quite, it, it's not so obvious, but then when you test the wax from the hive, there's a buildup of these poisons in the wax itself. Um, So, you know, with with what I hope will be a more supportive administration around these issues coming into office, there's a lot of advocacy work to be done. Um, There's a lot of, um, I mean, I I think that, that, you know, there are organic alternatives that are out there um, that people can use to protect their crops. And you know, my hope is that um, farmers will move more and more in that direction. And part of what we can do as consumers is be willing to eat food that doesn't look like it was, you know, out of a, uh, you know, out of a TV show, but actually came off of a real plant. And that's that's an educational process. Um, there are some really good businesses that are focusing on that work, and it would be great if people would support them. Um, I hope I got to all those questions. Um, what uh-huh. are the businesses? What was that? What are the businesses that we could support? Um, so other people should speak out also because I don't I don't know in every location but basically there are if you if I would think that if you search imperfect vegetables or imperfect fruits there are different purveyors where they'll actually intentionally be trying to um, source things that are, um, oh, someone's, uh, yeah, someone's posting CSAs. So CSAs are community supported agriculture. And that's absolutely um, a fabulous thing. My family has been doing that for years. The way a CSA works is that um, uh, you buy a share in the produce of a farm for a whole season and you pay for it upfront. So that way the farmer knows They've got their bills paid, and they will bring you what is fresh and, you know, at its at the height of its yumminess, locally um, every week. And that's a, that's a fabulous way, actually, to get produce that's actually raised by normal farmers, like real people that are close by that are trying to farm sustainably. And then you're you're really you're really supporting that system. Um, for more on that, I could recommend. Um, Chazon H A Z O N is a great organization, um, but now, thank God, uh, a lot of farmers have um, a lot of a lot of cities have CSAs. Some of them are Jewish, some of them are not. It's all good. Um, someone's saying that that uh, there's someone near them that sprays peppermint oil. Yeah, there's all sorts of cool alternative. Um, sprays that people can make out of things in their own kitchen. Um, yeah. We are just about it. time. Um, and, no, uh, yeah, I, I just want to say um, a huge thank you um, to Ravni Sarna and to Drisha for the honor um, of being here. And I want to also thank everyone who came to participate for questions. Um, it's probably sort of obvious that I have a passion for sharing um, my enthusiasm on this topic. And, you know, I'm happy to, if there's, if any of you know of other audiences, it's, it's my delight. I, I guess to I really see it as like a way of highlighting sort of where we need to go in terms of protecting the planet more broadly. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for having me
1: yeah thank you so much for coming this was such a privilege Um, and it was such a privilege uh, to learn your uh, your your very unique um, brand of Torah Uh, (laughs) I'll never uh, I'll never look at those parts of the Gemara again the same ever again and so that was just like a fantastic Torah and and uh, and really just beautiful understanding of, of nature and um, there's, you're leaving us all off a lot to think about and reflect on. And I they think the relationship that you really model with nature is something we're trying to like explore through this series and through the rest of what's happening with our winter's mind, um, which is sort of like, we eat food. And when we eat food, we make a bracha of like, thank you God for making the fruit of the tree. But like most of us have no idea like what it even takes to sustain a tree or for a tree to even get pollinated so that it can make fruit. Um, and, we, and, and you're really drawing our attention to, well, there's there's a lot of a lot of creatures that need to be kept alive and sustained in order for that process to even happen, and so yeah, uh, you know, hopefully next time you eat an apple, you'll remember that there were some pollinators involved in that, yeah. um, and, um, yeah. and be grateful uh, for their for that the elements of creation that they represent as well. Um, so really, really thank you for the mindfulness that you've gifted all of us, and for your tremendous knowledge mm-hmm. of of this like area yeah. of ecology. And really, it really just a privilege to.
0: To listen to you and to learn
1: from you. Thank you. you. Thank you. you. It's, it's so fabulous night. that
0: you're doing this series. It's just, I was so excited when I saw you're putting it together.
1: It's wonderful. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, we're thrilled about it. So, we're going to be back here tomorrow night learning about heritage poultry um, and the farming of, like, yeah, farming of birds the way that birds are supposed to be and supposed to be farmed um, with. Or by Greenberg. I, for those of you who joined us yesterday, he pinch hit um, and, um, and you, you, I think you got a chance to see how invested he is in animal welfare through the end of his presentation um, about about different slaughter methods and how Shkita kind of lines up to those. Um, and, and I think we're gonna we're gonna see a lot more of that tomorrow night um, and learn more about his more recent involvement in, in poultry farming and um, in farming heritage poultry. So I'm very excited for that and then, of course, on Thursday night, we'll be with Michael Fraud, who's actually here with us, uh, talking about plants. And that should be really, really wonderful too. Um, so I look forward to continuing to work with all of you. And thanks again to all of you who came back from last night to tonight. And I look
0: forward to seeing you tomorrow. Um, happy learning. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Raba, Amalia.